Hi, you're listening to Pod Academy. I'm Benjamin Concanon Smith, your host and history teacher at Wachusett Regional High School. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. David Garland, the Arthur T. Vanderbilt Professor of Law and Sociology at New York University. We will be discussing his new book, Peculiar Institution America's Death Penalty in an Age of Abolition. The title gives away the main question Garland tasked himself with answering, which is Why does this practice still exist in America, especially given that it has been abolished in every other Western country since the 1970s? Professor Garland, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I want to start this interview, as I do with every interview, by asking what brought you to this project? Why write about the American death penalty? My prior work was about the sociology of punishment and control, and I described in a book, a book called The Culture of Control, that America and Britain and maybe some other Western countries too were developing in similar directions, that their, their criminal justice policies, their penal policies were all shifting in a certain kind of way. But that book left unanswered the question of why the USA is much more extreme and much more intense in its level of punishments. So I figured that to kind of take up that question, a nice way of doing it would be to focus on a very specific thing, the death penalty, which distinguishes what you might say America's intense punishments or its excessive punishments from the ones being compared. I moved to the USA from Britain, from Scotland, um, about 15, 16 years ago, and I've been teaching here ever since. And anyone who teaches about crime and punishment in this country has to address the question of the death penalty, because even though it's a tiny marginal institution in terms of its numbers, every year there's maybe 70 or 80 people sentenced to death, there are literally millions sentenced to imprisonment, we nonetheless, we lawyers especially, talk about the death penalty all the time. And, And I figured that I needed to get up to speed on this and really make it something that I was expert about rather than an amateur about. So that that's the background. You mentioned just a moment ago a glaring disparity between the United States and other Western European nations, essentially that those nations have abolished the death penalty and the United States has not. Why is it the U.S. is holding on to the practice of executing criminals, uh, citizens? Is this the case of American exceptionalism, and is that even a fair question? Well, that is a fair question. In fact, it's, it's one of the questions that the book asks and tries to answer. It might not be fair to, to expect me to answer it in less than 300 pages. <laughs> But I'll fly. But basically, America is distinctive. Um, every country is distinctive in, in terms of having its own death penalty history and death penalty abolition or death penalty reform. Um, America it has a unique pattern of development and, and use of the death penalty. But it's not exceptional in the way that people usually mean that phrase. I mean, the, the, the term American exceptionalism has a long and interesting history. Sometimes it's used as a kind of political self-love. So America is exceptional in the sense of being better. That's why we Americans must you know, disparage the rest and imagine ourselves to be the city on a hill. And, and anyone who doesn't think that way, maybe the current president, is going to be criticized from the right. Do you believe in American exceptionalism? That's kind of a patriotic call to arms. Definitely. But sociologists and historians use the term American exceptionalism to mean something different. They mean that a pattern that is shared by most of the Western nations, is not shared by the USA, that America is an exception to a general rule. And the general rule might be the emergence of labor movements or uh, socialist parties or a very strong welfare state. And the idea is that all the rest have that development 
And the USA is an exception because it doesn't have that development. So American exceptionalism is a very strong way of making a statement about America's difference. Um, And in the book, I argue against that very strong notion. What I say is that, first of all, America is not one place for this purpose. There are 50 states, the federal government. Right. Uh, We have... Over half the states at one time or another have abolished the death penalty, and currently 17 of them are abolitionists. So America is a mixed place. It's not a single place. In addition, there's nothing exceptional about the USA with respect to the death penalty for most of the last 200 years. In fact, if you look at 19th century and most of 20th century developments, then America is in the vanguard, or at least some of the American states are in the vanguard of reform and abolition. What I mean by that is places like Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Rhode Island, Maine, they abolished the death penalty in the middle of the 19th century, a whole century before most of the European countries did. So there was nothing laggard about that. America was like in the forefront. What I suggest is that parts of America, particularly the southern parts, are now different from the rest of the the Western developed world, in retaining the death penalty. And that is uh, an important fact to be explained, and I try and explain that by reference to a number of things, most particularly to the structure of the American state, by which I mean the federal national government and the state government and local governments, and the distribution of powers, particularly legal legislative powers, across these different levels of government, which is really quite distinctive. There's no other country, uh, whether they're federal countries or not, that allow local governments to decide whether to have the death penalty and enforce it or not. So it seems like local control over the death penalty often leads to retention of the death penalty? Elsewhere it's a national question. And because it's a national question elsewhere, you find that typically national elites, um, governmental elites, leaderships, have abolished the death penalty despite the fact that local people, maybe even a majority of the public, wants to retain it. That pattern can't really be repeated in the USA because if local people want to retain it, they have a constitutional right to do so here. So basically the the framing argument for why America, parts of it, retain the death penalty has to do with the structure of political institutions and the allocation of um, legislative powers in this country. Right. And you argue in your book, and I think you're right to point out, that this is something that the United States has a deep history with. That's right. It, it, it's basically part of the original constitutional settlement that's been reproduced over centuries and still is a very powerful, maybe even a more powerful fact now than it was previously. It used to be the case that the, the popular will of local majorities was offset by a fairly strong powers given to the statesmen of the Senate or given to the Supreme Court or given even to the Electoral College, all of which were non-popular in the sense that they were not directly elected by the people. The president wasn't elected by the people until recently. The Senate basically wasn't elected by the people. They were supposed to be offsetting liberal institutions, counter-majoritarian, basically in order to temper the popular will, uh, in order to do what was right for the nation or right for the state or what what was good, um, 
the constitutional framers imagined you have to have popular democracy, but also counter-majoritarian liberal restraints. What I would say is that over the last century, but particularly over the last half century, the counter-majoritarian restraints, the kind of liberalism, have weakened. And so now, more than ever, if a popular majority at a local level wants to retain death penalty, say, they're going to be empowered to do so because uh, the political parties, the Senate... The Supreme Court even are much less resistant to popular will than they once were. Sure, but doesn't this sort of bring up something that's a bit ironic? I mean, uh, I'm thinking now of the the NSA story that broke recently. I think as a culture, uh, as a society, we're adamantly suspicious. Um, this is Americans. I guess I'm speaking for all Americans right now. Go ahead. Of, uh, of state power. Yet at the same time, it's local control over government that's keeping this policy and practice in place. So essentially my question is, how is it that a society that is so adamantly suspicious of state power is also willing to entrust the government with the power to put citizens to death? Does this not seem inherently ironic? So that, that's a very good question. It, it, it presents like a conundrum. How could it be the case that Americans who are suspicious of state power nonetheless give the, the state the power to kill. Other countries, uh, you know, the European countries particularly, are very reluctant to allow the state the death penalty precisely because they don't trust the state. How could the American anti-governmental culture allow the state the power to kill, especially in the South, where you might say the most anti-government sentiment Definitely. is concentrated? So that that's the puzzle. The Resolution to that puzzle has to do with control of state power and particularly popular control of state power when it comes to something like the death penalty. You have to remember that in, in this country, it's not the state separate from the people that imposes a death sentence. Instead, it's an elected official, a prosecutor, a district attorney, presenting a case before another elected official, namely an elected state judge, and again decided in the death penalty by a jury of the people. They're the ones who decide in the death penalty. So instead of thinking about the death penalty as something the state does, in America you might better think about it as something that popular majorities and their representatives do. As, as one of my colleagues, Frank Zimmering, once put it, um, Americans don't think of the executioner as being a state official. They think of the executioner as a friend of the family. Could you talk a bit about the connection that you see between the American death penalty in America's history with uh, racial problems such as lynching in the American South? So that's, that's a theme in the book, actually. The, 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 the book tries to answer the question, why does the death penalty still seem to many Americans, especially African Americans, to be resonant of or an echo of or maybe even a contemporary form of lynching? And that's really a puzzling proposition. It's puzzling for two reasons. Uh, it's puzzling because why, after 40 years of Supreme Court intervention and regulation and supervision of the states and their death penalty administration, how could it be that racism still persists within the death penalty? And it does. All the studies right. that we have showed that the, the pattern of prosecuting with a capital indictment and sentencing to death is heavily skewed in terms of race. That's to say black offenders who have been convicted of murdering white victims are very much more likely to be charged and sentenced with the capital punishment than are white perpetrators or even black perpetrators who've had black victims. So how could racism continue even after 40 years of Supreme Court regulation? That, that's that one puzzle. Right. Um, and, and the answer to that for me is that 
basically the Supreme Court, for all of its efforts to impose due process and legality, has continued to allow the death penalty to be a discretionary judgment made by a, a local jury. And the local jury is typically in some ways shaped by the kind of prejudices and the kind of heritage that we have in this country of viewing with suspicion young black men, especially young black poor men. The Supreme Court has been presented with these studies underscoring the systemic racism at play. Why has that not brought about any changes specifically? It's brought about one big change, which is that the Supreme Court since 1972 has repeatedly imposed due process safeguards and, and restrictions and regulations on states' death penalties. So uh, the, the Supreme Court and the federal courts take very seriously the charge that the death penalty is a kind of lynching. Uh, a lynching is a summary justice that doesn't involve due process, doesn't involve proper procedure. Um, it's kind of like a kangaroo court. Okay. The Supreme Court's taken every step to ensure that the, uh, the process of bringing a capital punishment charge, trying it and imposing the sentence and then carrying it out should be governed by law. So you might say that, that much of what's happened in the last 40 years has made the death penalty look the opposite of a lynching. The death penalty now takes place in a very carefully staged trial. After a sentence of death is imposed, there are a whole series, usually at, uh, on average something like nine post-conviction appeals and reviews and habeas petition hearings, right. of which make the death sentence seem as if it's carefully regulated by law. And typically, somebody who's sentenced to death won't be put to death until 14 or 15 years after the sentence. That looks nothing like a lynching. On the other hand, it continues to be the case that the people who are sentenced to death are young black men accused of heinous crimes that have outraged the public against white victims in southern communities. And that continues to be the lynching story, these were precisely the circumstances, the allegation of an outrageous crime that alarmed and infuriated a local community who got together and insisted that they would take control and do justice in a popular justice form, that's to say lynch someone. So you have this bizarre combination of the form of legality and due process and anti-lynching and the substance that still looks like a racial act, a lynching act. You already mentioned discretionary sentencing, but can you talk about uh, what victim impact evidence is and what, if anything, it has in common with lynching? In a death penalty case, the trial is split into two elements. If the person is convicted of the, the capital offence, then the question is, should this person be sentenced to death or sentenced to life imprisonment? That The sentence of death is always, in this country, a discretionary sentence. Nobody is automatically mandated to the death penalty because of whatever crime they've committed. It's always a discretionary sentence. So the jury decides whether the sentence should be a death sentence or a life imprisonment sentence. And indeed, there's a kind of trial, a sentencing trial held in front of the jury to listen to mitigation evidence that tells you why this particular offender might have some reason for mercy, that he had a rotten social background or that he suffered from illnesses or brain injuries or whatever at the time. And aggravating evidence, evidence that says, look, this person, in fact, is dangerous. This person will be violent. This person has a terrible you know, history of criminal conduct. So in that sentencing trial, when the jury is deciding whether to sentence the person to death or not, the 
possibility of relatives of the, the murdered deceased person, these relatives are now able to present evidence about their suffering, what kind of impact on them the murder has had. So if, if for example, the children or the, the spouses or the, the grandparents of a murdered victim wants to come and present to the jury evidence about how their lives have been ruined by the murder, then that's something that the jury will now listen to in deciding whether or not to impose a death sentence. The, 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 the Supreme Court, when first presented with the question, is it constitutionally acceptable to allow victims, victims' relatives in this case, to present victim impact evidence at sentencing, they at first said no because it would be emotionally inflaming for the jury to listen to such evidence being presented. Later, in Payne versus Tennessee in 1991, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court changed its mind. They said, actually, the, uh, the jury should be allowed to hear victim impact statements. After all, they hear mitigating evidence. They should also hear evidence about the harm that's been caused. So that's what victim impact statements are. And most people believe that the presentation of victim impact statements are liable to make a death penalty decision more likely. Well, I would say so. I mean, um, just, I mean, mitigation evidence is, is evidence, actual evidence, whereas victim impact is just to appeal to the emotion of the jury. I would say mitigation evidence and aggravation evidence are both about appealing to the, 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 uh, the emotional feelings of the jury. Since it's a jury of lay people making their mind up, in the end, it's about their hearts as well as their minds and how they feel. So, um, the, the argument about emotion cuts both ways. The aggravators and the mitigators are both emotional. Well, I suppose that's true, um, how they're supposed to cancel each other out. But don't you think it's still a bit more skewed towards a death sentence when you have death-qualified jurors hearing these cases? I mean, can you talk a bit about what a death-qualified jury is? So, again, this is one of these only-in-America concepts. Uh, I think people abroad would be a little appalled by this. Um A major question in capital cases is who is going to serve on the jury? Historically, uh, that was a big big question because uh, African-Americans, blacks, uh, Latinos were typically excluded from jury service. And so you would have all white juries convicting and sentencing to death black perpetrators. That was regarded, of course, as as a, uh, a violation of constitutional rights. And so the the composition of the jury has always been something that's been carefully considered by the federal courts. Early on in the process, in the the history of the death penalty, states began to exclude potential jurors who had a moral objection, who had scruples about imposing death sentences. Um, At the time this happened, the death penalty was automatic. It was a mandatory sentence for murder. And so if you were a juror or a potential juror who had a religious objection, say, to the death penalty, then you would be excused from that jury. Um, And in fact, the prosecution wouldn't want you on that jury because you might be one of these holdouts who would say, you know, we can't bring in a verdict because I object to the death penalty. So the idea of death qualifying is the procedure that occurs in selecting a jury. And today it occurs in the following way. People are asked, do you have objections to the death penalty? Do you have major qualms about the death penalty? Would you find it difficult to impose a death penalty? And if the people in the jury uh, panel say, yes, I would have some difficulty because I have some questions about it, then they can be excluded from the jury and they are excluded from the jury. A consequence of that is 
that by and large, capital juries end up being predominantly male and predominantly white for the simple reason that more African-Americans and Latinos and more women have concerns and objections about the, the, the death penalty than do whites and males. Right. Death-qualified juries end up looking like male-white juries. And the Supreme Court, again, says that that's a perfectly constitutional, valid procedure in order to allow the state to carry out its death penalties, and that's the situation that we have. That's very interesting. Uh, so if we could for a moment turn back to the history of this. I mean, we've all seen movies like Braveheart, not to bring up the Scottish thing, but um, and the gruesome executions that took place. Um, um, so how have we arrived here where we are now? Lethal injections, you know, years after um, sentencing. That's a very long developmental process, which is very interesting in my view. And, and essentially, you're, you're right. What's happened over centuries of time is that an execution which was once public, spectacular, intensely cruel and involving bodily torments and and suffering and pain, has gradually over time been removed from the public gaze, put behind jail yard walls at first, now eventually moved into uh, an execution cell where there's, there's no members of the public present apart from a few witnesses. It's been made to be, over time, increasingly less intentionally painful, so the movement from executions by beheading or by uh, burning at the stake were replaced by hanging and then eventually by electric chairs and gas chambers and now lethal injections. The whole process being an attempt to render the state's punishment in some way civilized, to make it seem like it's not barbaric and not savage, that it's not intentionally cruel, that increasingly, instead of killing the person, what the state's doing is simply terminating their right to live. What you see is something like the lethal injection, which is, I would say, very close to the kind of cultural ideal that I'm describing here. It's the perfect execution in modern humanitarian culture would be just making the death the death sentence person disappear. Since we can't do that, the lethal injection makes him die, but without the signs of bleeding or bruising, noise, smells, torments. It's basically designed to render the, the, the death penalty in a kind of aesthetically acceptable civilized mode. That's been the American aspiration for, for a long time to move from egregious suffering on the scaffold to the humanitarian killing. But doesn't does that also sort of betray the uses and, and purpose of the death penalty as it was originally intended? So there's a, there's a lot going on in these changes. One, one of the things that certainly happens is if you have a lethal injection intended to make capital punishment, state killing, look more or less like euthanasia, a kind of medical procedure that's careful to be gentle with the patient, then you undermine the retributive, punitive aspect. You're killing someone, but you're trying to kill them in a way that seems, I don't know, gentle and careful and compassionate, which is a kind of very mixed message. And the question is, how did we get there? Well, originally, as you say, in the early period of the, the, the modern state, the execution served a very different kind of function. The execution was a way for 16th and 17th century uh, rulers to display their sovereign power and essentially to vanquish their enemies before a viewing public. And so they did that in ways that were vividly cruel and spectacular and kind of awesome in the original sense of that term. 
Today, I would say, the death penalty has no such function. The death penalty is an unnecessary um, penalty, which is still around because there's some popular support for it, not because there's any government that will be destabilized if it doesn't kill criminal offenders. So we have this kind of ambivalence about what the death penalty is. And undoubtedly, a state killing a citizen in a a non-necessary context. I mean, basically, you could have life imprisonment without parole. That's what most of the, uh, the criminal justice system does most of the time. A state killing a citizen is a violation of most of our political culture um, principles. Basically, you know, the state ought to be restrained, it ought to be respectful, it ought to be concerned with the, the, the health and happiness and welfare of the population. Here it is killing citizen. So today we do this in a way which I think is hesitant and ambivalent and really in a way self-defeating because as most onlookers who really know about the death penalty would say, despite what it promises, capital punishment really does not deliver much in the way of retribution or victim satisfaction. What it delivers instead is an agonizingly long period of decades during which the murderer is constantly challenging his sentence, is probably, in two-thirds of the cases, going to have his sentence overturned. And in the end, death, death sentence is merely that, a kind of statement, and not actually a killing. You sort of were hinting at the data that doesn't really support the practice. Specifically, um, so it's more expensive to kill people, is that right, um, than it is to imprison them for life? That, that seems counterintuitive, um, since, you know, you can kill somebody for, for next to nothing and it would be over and done with next. But in, because lawyers cost money, and particularly because courts cost money, it's very expensive to stage a capital punishment trial and sentence and execution. I mean, so compared to having someone languish in prison, a prison that's already been built and you have one additional person added to it, the prison sentence, even though it's for life, is much less expensive. Um, and so I guess what I was trying to get at is if you sort of divorce the moral argument uh, that people might use for capital punishment, if you d- divorce uh, the morality from it and you just look at the statistics and you see, well, it's much more expensive, it's, it's much cheaper to imprison somebody for life without parole, you know, it, it doesn't um, actually deter criminals from recidivism or, or you know, committing other crimes. What are its uses? Most death penalties, if they're imposed, are subsequently overturned on appeal. And even the, 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 the rare ones that aren't overturned on appeal, it would take 14 or 15 years on average to carry out a death sentence. Most people who are on death row die of natural causes, not all execution. So the real death penalty is a kind of a disappointing, self-defeating, counterproductive, expensive undertaking that, that exists not for criminal justice reasons, but for political and cultural ones. And that, of course, gets you on to the other death penalty, the imaginary death penalty, the kind of image of the death penalty people have. And that's very, very compelling, powerful one. Um, And I would say that one of the reasons the death penalty persists in this country is that a variety of people make uses of the idea or the threat or the the prospect of a death sentence. And I I describe in the book a variety of people and a variety of groups and the different ways that they do it. That ranges from the very practical. So, for example, a prosecutor who's bringing a death penalty case 
will actually have a better chance of winning the case because the jury gets to be death qualified. Death qualified juries are more pro-prosecution and pro-conviction. There's a better chance of a guilty verdict for that outcome. Moreover, the prosecutor will stand to gain something in his or her subsequent political career if they succeed in getting a death sentence for an unpopular local murderer. At the other end of things, the media say, find the death penalty very useful, very attractive. Why is that? Because if you have a report of a crime, and the report of the crime is trying to describe how significant, how intense, how important this is, to be able to say that the person faces a death penalty... And indeed, later on, to be able to report on will the jury bring in a death verdict or not, to describe the the scene in the courtroom and the expression on the witnesses' faces or the expression on the accused's face when he is or is not sentenced to death, all of that is a way of intensifying the drama and indeed the kind of the, the morality play surrounding a crime and its punishment. If without the death penalty you were to try and do this, you'd be talking about, well, the person faces a lengthy sentence of imprisonment. Well, so does everyone who's charged with a a felony in this country. In the USA, lengthy sentences of imprisonment are standardly issued. To, To distinguish a case as being especially egregious or notable or visible, the death penalty is very useful in this way. It it makes something dramatic, even if in the end the sentence will be converted, like everything else, into another lengthy prison sentence. For human beings anyway, human beings today in the USA, the notion of death, the the prospect of, of death, and the prospect particularly of a death that's deliberately imposed with public backing um, and undertaken with a kind of uh, the, the precise intentionality and deliberateness of a state killing, that is a really compelling and fascinating and, and repulsive idea. Whenever we begin to talk about death, there's an intensification of meaning and interest and attention. And I think that that's entirely understandable and entirely appropriate. And I also think that when we're considering um, murder cases, when after all someone has been already put to death by a criminal offender, then it's entirely understandable that we respond to this illegitimate death, this criminal death, by thinking whether or not maybe a response by the the, the courts, by the state, by the people that you know, gives like for like and imposes death there too. That's an understandable moral sense, and it's one that, you know, human history is really organized around for millennia. So it's not surprising that people are intensely, dramatically interested in the question of death. The, The notion that it is therefore useful and therefore something that the cultural industry or politicians or the media will deal with and employ... There's nothing really venal about that. I mean, it, it, it's exactly what you would expect. Indeed, there's a, there's a serious moral argument that would say the only appropriate response to a deliberate, cruel murder would be indeed to impose the death penalty. That, that's not an absurd idea. It just turns out that, that it produces lots of contradictions and lots of difficulties not in administering this death penalty. First of all, you have to entrust this killing to a state. We've discussed all the problems with that. Secondly, you have to get the um, the prosecution and conviction accurate. We have problems of innocence and people who are wrongly convicted. And thirdly, you have the problem of arbitrariness. Why is it that this person, maybe this poor black male, is sentenced to death, and this other person, maybe this you know, well-represented, rich, uh, white male, is not sentenced to death? You have all the difficulties of discrimination. So for all these reasons, the, the, the serious moral argument that perhaps 
a death penalty could sometimes be justified seems to be undermined from most other nations in the developed world by the counter-arguments. It seems that in the 1960s, the United States was very close to possibly abolishing the death penalty. Over a long period of time, really from the the late 18th century onwards, death penalties were used less and less and and used in more and more restricted ways for fewer kinds of offences and offenders. And indeed, by the middle of the 20th century, many countries were beginning to consider abolition, and America was one of them. Um, By that time, by the 1960s, a number of states had already abolished the death penalty, and many of them were considering doing so. Up until that point, the Supreme Court had never um, really been asked to discuss the constitutionality of the death penalty as such. The death penalty was always assumed to be constitutionally permitted. Um, It's mentioned uh, obliquely by reference in the, the Bill of Rights, It had been um, a standard punishment of the court in the USA ever since the country was formed. So the idea it might be unconstitutional was really not taken seriously. Uh, There there were one or two cases, for example, when New York began to use the electric chair or when Utah began to use a firing squad um, or indeed when Louisiana wanted to execute someone twice because it didn't work well the first time. Um, The Supreme Court was asked about these constitutional questions, and indeed in each case upheld the death penalty. In the 1960s, in the context of the civil rights movement, the um, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and its Legal Defense Fund brought cases to the Supreme Court claiming that in the South, the racist and sometimes summary prosecution and conviction of African Americans was one more example of Jim Crow racism and exactly what the civil rights movement was was trying to undo. And in in a way, for example, capital rape was still a crime in the South in the 1960s. That's to say you could be charged and sentenced to death and executed for the rape of a woman. The only people that were ever charged with capital rape were black offenders who allegedly had killed, uh, had raped white women. Right. So this was this was a terrifically scandalous example of Jim Crow justice, and the civil rights movement challenged it. Once that challenge began to be heard by the Supreme Court, it was generalized to include all of the death penalty cases, because it turned out on close inspection, the death penalty tended to be administered in ways that were arbitrary and were discriminatory and were racist. And, and indeed, there's a whole variety of legal arguments brought against it. And at first, the court was reluctant to hear them. But over the 1960s and up to 1972, it became increasingly sympathetic to these claims. And in 1972, in the landmark case of Furman versus Georgia, a majority of the court, five of the justices, decided that as administered at that point in time, all of the American states' death penalties were unconstitutional. They were unconstitutional cause. They were being administered in arbitrary ways that right. denied due process to defendants. And they were cruel and unusual in violation of the Eighth Amendment. So in 1972, as a result of a Supreme Court decision, all of the American states, there were something like 40 states that had the death penalty, all of their statutes were voided. Now that had occurred in 1972, as I said, as part of the civil rights challenge to racist criminal justice, especially in the South. However, 1972 was not an auspicious year for the civil rights movement. In fact, by the time the Furman Court 
made its decision, there was really already a backlash in progress against the civil rights movement, and there was a lot more concern with street disorder, with riots, and particularly with rising murder rates and crime rates. So very quickly after the Supreme Court voided all of the statutes, states began to legislate new, improved capital statutes. And remarkably, you know how difficult it is to pass legislation in this country. <laughs> right. Remarkably, within two years, 35 states had passed new death sentence laws. Sure. So the reaction to Furman, in, in, in a, almost in a way, made it stronger, made the death penalty yeah. stronger. Right. It mobilized the pro-death penalty movement. Um, Two-thirds of the states passed new capital statutes. So the Supreme Court was now faced with a dilemma. Basically, it had said that the previously existing uh, capital punishment laws were arbitrary and cruel and unusual. What did they think of the new laws, which were already being used to sentence people to death in the uncertainty constitutional status of the death penalty? So in 1976, in a case called Gregg versus Georgia, and in a series of companion cases, the Supreme Court heard challenges to the new improved death penalty statutes, in particular the one in, in Georgia. And this time, instead of looking at cases that involved black defendants who had murdered or raped white victims and who, it, it would appear, were the victims of civil rights abuses, in the 1976 Greg vs. Georgia case, and the other cases decided with it, the defendants were all white. Mm -hmm. The cases looked exactly like law and order cases, and not at all like civil rights cases. Okay. Um, and basically what the court said was that the capital punishment um, process, as now defined, with its new safeguards, with, with new trial arrangements, with new appeal arrangements, with new guidance to the jurors, that that was indeed constitutional. So basically in 1976, the Supreme Court um, permitted the states to proceed with capital punishment, having four years before refused them that permission. So basically the... the uh, the trajectory of the USA at that point diverged from the rest of the Western industrial democracies. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.